0: Tonight on Arena, co editor Kevin Barry and four of the writers bring us into the comforting world of the annual arts anthology Winter Papers 9. 51551 is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. I know the season is upon us when the beautiful journal, The Winter Papers, drops through my letterbox. Hardback and clad in papal purple cloth. This, the Winter Papers ninth edition, sports an image of an iron jumper on its cover. The jumper, we are led to believe and the contents of the Winter Papers uh, is knit together by editors Kevin Barry and Olivia Smith. Tonight we celebrate this annual collection of essays, short stories, interviews, poems and photography with co-editor Kevin Barry and award-winning author of three short story collections and three novels himself, the latest of which, of course, that old country music uh, and the night boat to Tanji Ear. Uh, I'm also joined by four of the 24 contributors to Winter Papers 9. Kerry Nidogherty is in our Limerick studio she is the author of two books, Thin Places and Cacophony of Bone, which mix nature writing with memoir. With me here in Dublin, Roisin Kybert, author of the acclaimed essay collection, The Disconnect A Personal Journey. Ishmael Claxton, New York photographer and artist now living in Dublin. Hilary A. White, writer and conservationist who is currently finishing a book on raptors in Dublin. And you're all very welcome to studio this evening. Obviously, it could have come to you first, Kevin, and and that iron jumper. I was sincerely hoping either you would have one on your person and be wearing a big, cuddly iron jumper, or even better, you'd have one folded up and handed across the desk to me.
1: Well, yeah, I I, I missed an opportunity. (laughs) You said papal purple, which is a lovely way of putting it. We were also thinking about the late Prince of ah, really sure, right, okay and in, in god rest him you know yeah. in, in, in fairness so the, yeah the last couple of years we had kind of owls and hares and all sorts of people mm. were coming up going what's what's your spirit animal mm. this year so so we thought okay it's got to subvert expectation and take it on a different a different route this year.
0: Yeah, so the, the orange jumper's on the outside, and inside, in the inside cover, we've got several balls of wool and several pairs of knitting needles. Have you taken up a new hobby?
1: Yeah, well, do you know of the old pandemic? <laughs> you had to do something <laughs> to keep yourself going. <laughs> and, um, and Olivia was actually knitting at one point in the pandemic. It didn't go well, so she didn't stick <laughs> at it for too
0: long. I, I, I'm kind of astonished, Kevin, and I'm sure you and Olivia equally so, <laughs> When I said tonight winter papers nine, yeah. it seems like two minutes ago we were talking about winter papers with yes. no number after it. Yeah, it's
1: it, it it's crazy. We were just, like there's a, a decade's worth under our belt almost already. Mm. You know, I'm um, just counting up the pieces in a while, so that means you know there's kind of the guts of a of sort of 150, 160 pieces, um, and it's really interesting when they come into us every year, Sean, at the start of the year when we start commissioning and then see what's on the submissions pile mm. because. They're, they're not coming out of a void, they're coming out of the kind of the emotional weather of what's going on with writers and artists and, and everyone around the country, you know. And you, you sense very definite kind of trends and feelings and movements in that mm. every year. Not just in the stuff that ends up finally in the book, but in all the submissions as well. And this year was particularly interesting. In, for me, there was a sense of people in a very fragile place but starting to strike out again and get going again in a very determined way. I mean, after the pandemic, I thought it was quite a long, raw kind of hangover period where artists weren't sure of their footing Mm. and weren't sure about long-term projects that had been on the go. And is this really what I need to be doing now? You know, we've all been through lots of sort of crazy times and strange things, but a sense to me this year of new kind of energy, Gathering itself around people's work practices, and it's something I've noticed actually in Dublin. I'm, I'm not down very often, but the last couple of visits over the last month or two, just a sense of the place, kind of finding its footing All again, right. kind of finding its energy a bit again. Not not just talking about in the arts, but just sort of coming out of that sort of long strange period we went through, and just people sort of going, okay, back 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 to it. And 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 get onto it again. Well, you certainly,
0: know. there's so you're you're talking about an air of positivity there because I did yeah. get the sense in the jumper on the front of 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 this year's anthology. You know, there's a bit of a hug involved there it's, as it's well. There? It's
1: it's a cuddle waiting to happen. Yeah, well, well, we, well, the arms
0: of the jumper are kind of about to extend out. Yeah, and, definitely and, and give give a hug to the to the reader. But um and I and I'll come back to you on this one, uh, Kevin. But I'll go around the, the table on it as well. Uh, I'm wondering about, as I said, Roisin Kybert sitting beside me here, as I said to Kevin, I, I was astonished when I kind of found myself saying Winter Papers 9. It says something about the health of the literary journal in Ireland. I mean, we can all list off several of them. I'm sure they're singing fly, you know, the list goes on and on forever in a day in some ways. What is it about the literary journal? Do you think, Roisin, what's the appeal in it for you as a writer?
2: I think it's had a transformative effect on my career as a writer. And, and now I find myself on the other side of it occasionally. Like I do some editing for another journal. <coughs> Sting a fly. But um, uh, okay, I also, I names, also teach um, creative writing hmm. at the University of Galway. And I see what these journals mean to young writers starting out and I know it well because I didn't take myself seriously as a writer until I started getting published in journals and and now maybe a little bit more kind of further into my career which I hope will last a lifetime um journals are the place where you can trial your ideas you can you can kind of develop your voice you can explore weird new areas for your writing that maybe wouldn't belong anywhere else. You know, I've been a journalist. I'm like, I can't see any mm. newspaper publishing an essay by me about carnivorous plants.
0: <laughs> Which is what your essay is about. And that's a real teaser trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned to find out what carnivorous plant Roshan Khybert is speaking about. Ishmael, um, you're you, you're originally based in New York, but now you're. how long have you been living in the Ireland? And did you, do you see a comparison between the state of the literary journey journal here, and perhaps your time spent in New York?
3: Um, well, I was born in New York, actually. I was um, born in New York, but I've lived around the States for quite a bit. And then I also lived a little bit in um, Central America, as well as Europe and Africa. But I've been in Ireland now for nine years, and same
0: length of time as Winter Papers has been.
3: I know, it's pretty crazy actually when you think about it. Yeah, and within the nine years, I've just kind of um, <coughs> developed my craft. And um, in terms of like making connections between New York and Ireland, I've definitely found over the years that this, uh, there's been a lot of history that I never knew about. I never knew how connected the Irish were in America. And then also now living here and been back home on both sides, I realized that so many people have. Uh, have lineage you know back to Ireland Mm. and I didn't realize how deep it was until like the last time I was home and my family was saying there was some new people staying with us and I met them and they ended up being from like Dingle, I think. And it was just so <laughs> random. And I just started having this conversation with them. And like, what are you doing living in Ireland? I'm like, I've been there for, I think it was like five or six years. And just were having these conversations. And mm. it was just interesting to see that everywhere I went afterwards, there was always this connection to yeah, Ireland. Back to Ireland, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, and, and I mean, it's specifically when it come, when we talk the specifics of your work later mm. on, but you're a your photographer, yes. essentially. The, the the opportunity to have your photographs and your photography in and amidst, yeah. a, 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 a text-based.
3: Yes, yes. I, 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 I was I, in awe by that, and I was very grateful for the opportunity. Actually, when I first got the message, because, you know, normally when you do submissions and you're looking at your submissions, and you're normally kind of reading over, and it's always like, oh, okay, maybe I didn't get in. And when I got in, I remember I was a bit teary because I was just so blown away at the idea of being part of such an uh, esteemed you know, uh, literary uh, journal, so I was quite blown away by it. And I'm very happy and I'm still in awe and I'm still kind of like buzzing on this idea of being part of this, you know. It's like, it's something that's going to be here forever, you know. So it's like we're part of history. In, yeah,
0: and, and it's down yeah. there on the printed yeah. Yeah, page exactly as, as part of that as part of that collection. And Carianne Docherty, who's in our, our Limerick studios this evening. Uh, the Hi. same How are you doing, Carianne? Good, <laughs> good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. The, the, the same kind of situation, I suppose, in, in your case, you, you talk about very personal matter, matters in your own essay, which we'll come to... Uh, later on in the programme, but that idea of the literary journal, has it given you maybe a place to explore things that you just simply can't and won't and couldn't explore rather elsewhere?
4: Oh well, absolutely and um, it was gorgeous to hear everyone speaking so far about, you know, what the literary journal means for them and I would definitely echo what rushing said, you know, like I could never imagine sending off like work about, you know, Basically postnatal depression um, or really anything that I touch on in this kind of anywhere else. So it's really special what's been created um, across the whole landscape of journals in Ireland. But I really do believe that um, this one's quite special.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hilary, just coming to you then finally, have you any theories as to why the literary journal is not just for the writer, but for the reader, such an attractive prospect?
5: I think it's probably the same reason that an old-fashioned print newspaper is an attractive thing. When you are going online for reading content, it's different to opening up a physical publication because when you open up a physical publication, it's been edited by somebody else and you go, oh, there's something I didn't expect to be reading mm. about today. There's something else I didn't expect to be reading about today. And I think it's like that. I mean, winter papers, I have I've every issue. Back when it started out in this Winter Pages, I think, when it began, And you open it up, and there's just going to be an array of things. There's going to be an array of styles and formats. There's going to be visual fare as well. There's going to be poetry, and and you know that it's going to have a real feeling of being very current uh, as well, even though it's an annual anthology. So that's I think that's its great success. I'm just looking.
0: I can almost see Kevin Barry blushing.
1: No, no, no! I I, I could listen to this for tonight. It's
0: great. (laughs) Um, When you, when yourself and Olivia came up with this idea uh, of winter papers and this, you know, it it really is a collection of essays. It's a collection of photographic essays. There are interviews in there. There are commentaries and interviews in there. I mean, it's very hard to define what makes its way in there. Has it uh, has it kind of grown into the nine year old child that you expected? In 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 kind of um,
1: delightful ways, I think it has shown. Yeah, we wanted it to be kind of almost willfully eccentric, um, mm. you know, in in that writers and artists could feel they could go anywhere really with the piece, as long as there was, you know, exuberance in the piece, regardless of what the topic might be. And just we were mentioning about about working with editors and all of that. And I was talking to Hilary a little outside um, about being edited and it's a great thing when 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 at any stage of a writer's career but but early on especially to work with editors um all good writers love to be edited you know uh, <laughs> love to have uh, attention lavished on <laughs> on their work and there's so much you can't see yourself no matter how much you've gone through with that piece no matter how many drafts you've done there's still so much scaffolding and stuff in there that you can't really recognize your own self you know so it's a, it's a great thing it's um I, 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 it's become a very important part of my year. My kind of, kind of editing, physical copy editing happens kind of in July and August every year, and it's like it's an amazing break from myself. Is it is it own.
0: midsummer or is midsummer night? Is midsummer's night the cut off point? Yeah, for some it's kind of
1: bonfire night is a kind of deadline kind of a thing yeah. for pagan reasons that we can't go <laughs> into here now. But it's um, yeah, so 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 that's the kind of the, the the kind of rhythm of it now is that all the material is usually in by then. And I sit down and start going through it with the with 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 the writers, and it's um it's fantastic just to see how um yeah. how people are tackling their own their own stuff on the page and their own technical difficulties and the engineering of the pieces, you know. So I can I can rob a lot from them as well from my own. Work
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is the whole secret part. It's, it's all out. <laughs> it. it's out. No, look, we watch out for the next novel, and you'll see all of all of you will see some of your own words. I think I wrote something like that. Sparrowhawks <laughs> in the next. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Movie, uh, now, um, Roisin, uh, we have to get to the to the to the carnivorous plant. <laughs> will you read the opening? Just uh, oh, yeah. read the opening because I think this will this will introduce the essay in a way that neither of us would be able to, I'm presuming.
2: Thank you very much. This is from my essay, Feed Me Seymour. It's April 2022, and I'm alone in Berlin for the first time. Rob, my boyfriend, is on a residency in Singapore for four and a half months, the longest we've been apart since first getting together. I need a distraction, a project I can pour care and attention into. So on a whim, I buy a carnivorous plant. The sundew, or Drosera capensis alba, looks small and innocuous, a tangled green rosette the size of my hand, I notice, as I carry it home wrapped in newspaper. Its eruption of spindly leaves, called tentacles, are lined with fine white, dewy hairs. Drosera is Latin for dewy, a word which always makes me think of skincare. The name comes from the transparent beads of liquid which tip each hair, a sugary mucilage which allows the plant to act as living flypaper. When a fly alights on a tentacle, it finds itself unable to leave again. The more it struggles, the more it rubs against the plant and sticks to it, and the more tightly it is ensnared. Finally, the plant curls around the struggling insect, attaching as many digestive glands as possible. Searching for guidance on how to care for the sundew, I discover a subreddit called Savage Garden and a number of dedicated YouTube channels. There's a pitcher plant named after David Attenborough and a flytrap named after Kim Jong-un, a tiny and gnarly and apparently quite bad at catching flies, insect, um, plant. (laughs) After a few days, I find the Drosera covered in little black spots, former flies congealing and decaying on its leaves. I count 10, some hardly there anymore, while on their way to becoming dust. At first I try not to think about how the plant is collecting dead things, then a dissonance sets in. I top up the water every morning, place it on the windowsill and whisper, eat up, like a proud plant parent. One evening my mother calls to ask how I'm settling in, and I tell her I've bought a carnivorous plant. She's disturbed. She asks, why would you want a thing like that? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> 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 That's rushing Coyburn reading from her essay, essay Feed Me Seymour and, and of course I'm guessing as mothers often do There in with that question, she gave you the material to write the essay. Why would you want a thing like that? You had to answer that question for yourself.
2: Yeah, she set in motion an entire philosophical quandary. I'm a vegetarian. Like she had to put up with me as an 11 year old, like Lisa Simpson, guilting her about eating meat. (laughs) And now I am raising deadly plants.
0: (laughs) Fly eating plants. Yeah. I, but you, you, you go into a, a, a real deep dive into... I, little did I know there was so much material on carnivorous plants out there. And I was very surprised to see that you were in very good company in your love of the sundew. I'm going to use the, the local... Mr. Charles Darwin, no less.
2: Charles Darwin spent 15 years of his life like slowly sinking into some kind of insanity, probably a very rational scientific insanity, um, raising sundews and other carnivorous plants. And he's the reason that we actually accept that they are carnivorous. Before that, we had Carl Linnaeus saying that they are merely offering shelter to tired insects <laughs> or a refreshing pool of water, not stomach acid, um, in which the, the insect can refresh itself. But really, the, the essay is actually just an excuse for me to write about a Little Shop of Horrors as well. Definitely. I was going to say, uh,
0: it's when we get to this particular Film that things really begin to lift off, and the title of the essay is explained.
3: Yes, Feed me, on, Feed me now! Uh, I can't! I'm starving! Look, maybe I can squeeze a little more out of this one. More! 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 more. There isn't any more. What do you want me to do? Slip my wrists? <sighs> oh boy! Look, I got an idea. I'm gonna go down to Schmendrik's and pick you up some nice sharp sirloin. Must be blood. Tui, that's disgusting. Must be fresh. I don't want to hear this. Feed me. Does it have to be human? Feed me. Does it have to be mine? Feed me. Where am I supposed
4: to get it? Feed me, Seymour. Feed me all
0: night long. That's right, boy! <laughs> there we go. And I wish, yeah, per Kerry, uh, Kerry and the Doherty is in our Limerick studio, you are missing the, the dancing uh, that's going on here, particularly from Roshin, dancing. Uh, the heart's as, 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 as she's listening to As she's uh, listening to that particular clip from Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, a, a quick aside to you, Kerry, have you seen Little Shop of Horrors? Have you watched it? Have you avoided it?
4: I have avoided it like the plague.
0: <laughs> well, no, that's very interesting because... Kerry, not uh, Rosine Kybert was in exactly the same boat as you, Kerry. Uh, but then eventually she plucked up the courage and watched it. I think um, in into your adulthood, Roshan. Only
2: last year. Only last year, that yeah. recent.
0: So, and, and now you regret that delay.
2: It's Steve Martin's greatest role as an evil dentist. and you'll never look at plants the same way again?
0: Because obviously Seymour is, uh, eat me Seymour, uh, or feed me Seymour. Seymour is the guy who has to feed her. Explain who Audrey 2 is, the voice of Levi Stubbs there that we heard as the plant.
2: Iconic, iconic. Um, Audrey 2 is named after Seymour's love object, the real Audrey, Audrey 1, although she sort of pales in into insignificance next to Audrey II, which is a giant sentient flytrap which mm-hmm. demands human blood. And slowly, um, I, I describe it in the essay as a, a negotiation with evil, turns Seymour to its bloodthirsty ways and promises him riches and success in return.
0: So there's a, Faust, there's a kind of a Faustian pact. I do love, mm-hmm. I have to say, the sentence just after where you finished, where it says carnivorous plants like Bond villains often dissolve their victims in acid. They're like disembodied stomachs, a digestion system in search of a body. So basically, you, 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 you quite happily have a Bond villain uh, in your flask. Although, don't spoil me, not, Don't. I've, I want to hold off on what has happened to this Bond villain. Um, h- how difficult is it to raise a Bond villain?
2: They're high maintenance. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, was, I was talking to Sinead, your producer outside, who said that she just threw away a fly trap. And I was like, yeah, I... Do not blame you. They demand filtered water, uh, temperate climates. It, they're kind of freaks of evolution. Like they live in marshy land. That's why they trap the flies, because they can't extract the nutrients from mm. the soil. Although uh, something I forgot to mention earlier is there's a movement to reclassify the potato as a predator. Of
0: yeah, I've got to ask you about this. Yeah. The idea that the potato is actually... Uh, a a meat eating plant. Mm. It's sticky. It's, it's it kind of frightening. Them. So, what does it
2: do? It just it, it doesn't maybe eat them, but it traps them because they're sticky. And then other creatures might come in and eat and leave droppings for the potato. So, it's a symbiotic
0: evil. Yeah. The whole An of Irish history of has to be read. I know, yes. I was idea. going to say that famine has a <laughs> totally new meaning on the basis on the basis of that. I have to say I laughed out loud several times reading that and it's suddenly mm. your innocent little story, which we'll come to a little bit later on, uh, Hillary, your innocent little story of a sparrowhawk. The sparrowhawk seemed like the, the most gentle animal, uh, bird in the world, all of a sudden when I read about this. Well, bar
5: the bit where I describe it pulling out the intestine like yeah, a piece there of spaghetti, yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
5: that small piece, yes. Um, yeah, there's quite a bit of bit of bloodshed and gore in this edition of Winter Papers. So I hope nobody minds too much.
0: Yeah, that you, you were talking about the positivity that you that you <laughs> that you were saying, Kevin.
1: Is this what we're talking about? Absolutely, all, all of human life coming gloriously and gorily to to, to 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 fruition here.
0: All right. Okay. Well, listen. I tell you what. Doing. Let let us take uh, a break here, and we'll come back, and we'll talk to Henry Ishmael and uh, Kerry about their contributions to the journal after these. And welcome back to this Arena special on the Winter Papers. On Winter Papers, rather, the annual collection of writings, poetry, prose, interviews and photography from editors Olivia Smith and Kevin Barry. Kevin is with us tonight in studio here as our contributors Roshan Carbert, Hilary White, Ishmael Craxton, and in Limerick, Kerry New Doherty. So we, we touched on your story, The Grove. Um, uh, well, it's an essay, sorry, uh, Hilary. This was, Kevin was talking about, he has this sense of things moving out of um, the pandemic and that period Mm. that we all want to forget about, I suppose, in some ways. But this was actually, certainly the starting point for this was slap bang in the middle of the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, the tail end of 2019, my dad passed away. And
5: so I kind of sleepwalked into this thing called the pandemic. I wasn't really with it. Mm. And I distinctly remember that day when I was playing outside with my son, who was two at the time, and we saw these hulks displaying in the sky over us near where we lived there. And that was that night afterwards, That that very evening was when Leo Racker came to the TV and said we're reducing restrictions down to two kilometres and there was a really real feeling of society clenching at that stage, mm. of things everyone taking an inhale. And as I say
0: in the piece I'm going to read, I slept badly that night. Well, actually read that piece because it'll give us us a sense of... Okay. It kind of fired you off into another exploration or a set of explorations.
5: Sure. Okay. I sleep poorly that night and creep out for a walk. A two kilometre radius is all that is now permitted, but I get no further than a few hundred metres. In the darkness of pre-dawn, movement inside a private cluster of trees has snagged me, thin flecks of streetlight glancing off the bloom of feathers. Further along the perimeter wall brings me to the locked pedestrian gate at the quietest corner of this urban woodland. My eyes still a little webbed by sleepiness, I look through rust-caked iron pickets and piece apart the silhouette of trunks and branches. The gaps where street lamp orange and sub-dawn violet intrude. I can hear softened struggle, a gentle yanking rattle of twig against twig. Emerging out of the darkness is a sparrowhawk dangling by her beak from the end of a branch. Her spindly legs and short wings jerk and jolt until the twig comes away. Now she drops, rights herself mid-air and flits up through a huge beach. Where she alights at a fork and a limb, an opaque crown reveals a nest in progress. I think I see her stoop down to thread a twig into the, tum- into the jumble. I'm barely breathing. These have to be the birds Sasha and I watched displaying over the house yesterday. It feels peculiar to be spying on something so liberated and instinctual at a time when human society is indefinitely clenched. I take this thought as my cue to slip away. Right then, my peripheral vision detects the tiniest flicker in some branches above my head. Slowly rotating my face upwards, I'm met by the male
0: sitting and keeping watch. Hi, I say to him. That is a Henry A. White reading from the, uh, near enough the opening section of his essay, The Grove from Winter Papers 9. You really, these, these, that couple, because <laughs> they are a couple, mm. they they become so important yeah. uh, to you. I think at that period in time, and and watching watching what they're doing, that kind of ability to suddenly look at something that is under your nose, uh, that was one of the things that happened during lockdown. Really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it
5: definitely was. We we all rediscovered our doorsteps during during lockdown, and one of the things you know, a lot of people, friends of mine, who wouldn't be that interest in the natural world of birds suddenly became very interested in the bird life in their gardens, birds coming to their feeders, they got more interested about feeding birds. Mm. Um, So it was, uh, I became quite obsessed with it. Um, It was very close to where I lived and I kept an eye on them and I found myself becoming quite worried about these these birds. Sparrowhawks do very well in urban settings, but they're particularly exposed, I felt, in this tiny woodland forked between the busy Donnybrook Road and uh, Wellington Place there, and and the setting itself, the grove was something I'd driven past and walked past a thousand times in my life and never given it a second thought, and it was now it was now one of the things yeah. I was thinking about all the time, you know.
0: Yeah, during that during that period, mm. um, one of the lovely things that that happens in this essay is the opening paragraph is that description of yourself and Sasha playing and spotting the birds. Then the third paragraph. of the third section is what you just read for us. Mm. In the middle, then, there's a a, a a section that opens with they meet in 1916 while sheltering from sniper fire, Estrella and Kathleen crouching close on Mount Street. Mm. And so I'm thinking, how are we going to marry mm. who are Estrella <laughs> and Kathleen and how are we going to marry that with the. With the sh- with the sparrowhawks, I suppose that's what the essay was for you. Was it about mm. finding a way of linking the two things in?
5: It was. Uh, I was saying to Kevin before that this is this is a, a chapter in a larger work about raptors intersecting with the people of Dublin, as I see it through my mad lens.
0: And raptors, are basically, is a collective uh, for
5: birds of prey, right? Yeah, in particular. Um, but the the restrictions of the word count on the essay actually forced me to be. Very inventive, and to condense an eight thousand word chapter down to four or five thousand words, whatever the word the word count is. So I had to find ways to weave in this story about these these two women who were the previous uh, oc- occupants of the grove, and one was you know the great Irish painter Stella Solomon's, and the other was her landlord Kathleen Goodfellow, who ended up leaving the grove to Antoshka before she died, because she wanted to preserve it as a as a you know a reserve for bird life mm. in particular, and I found that as I was researching all these things, their relationship was have, was beginning to have a conversation with my relationship with the Hawks. Yeah. So it was just a way of, um, I mean, there's, there's bits in this that are like dream sequences or st- completely fictitious things that I make up, you know, but I had to somehow within the restrictions Give the reader some idea of of their very close and very deep relationship.
0: Uh, and that, in in some ways, Ishmael, I'm I'm wondering about that, particularly with the writers, and it, it'll come up in another piece that we'll speak about later on. I think, yeah. is about this idea of editing and how you go about, you know, condensing something from whatever. What did you say, Hilary? Five thousand, eight thousand words down to three or four thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, that's quite a task. In photography, mm-hmm. it's a totally different process, I'm yes, guessing, yeah. that editing process how, or that
3: refining process. How would you define it in visual terms? Uh, it can be very difficult at times. Um, actually, for this particular project, um, uh, I'd say this is maybe the third version of it. Well, let's let's
0: explain what the project, what the project okay. is. Because uh, the, the, the title of the piece is Migration I- integration. integration. Yes, yes. That's the title.
3: Um, I can tell you a little bit about the history of the project first yeah. and then kind of go on. So basically the project started when I first came to Ireland. There was a few situations that happened to me and it just kind of changed my perspective on things. So my first situation was, um, I was at the GNIB and I was going to get my visa. And I remember they were asking me uh, a series of questions and they were like, where are you from? I was like, America. And I was telling them about my background and they were just like, you're you're American. So it was kind of, there was no, like there was nothing else. It was just, I was American. That was the first time in my life someone ever told me that. So it made me really rethink of like, how do we call ourselves? How do we define ourselves? And then my partner at the time, she, her and I reached to have a lot of conversations as well. And um, one of the things she was telling me was that like, in, in order to like understand Irish culture better, you should watch this series of films. And it was like The Commitments, The Snapper, like the classical films, Father mm-hmm. Ted. So I watched a lot of that stuff. And then kind of understanding Irish culture a little bit at the time. And then I started meeting other people who were either born here or who grew up here. And I I was, you know, talking to them about it as well. Like, like, how did you adapt to the Irish culture while at the same time maintaining the culture from where you came from? So that was the integration part of it. So initially started me doing just conversations with friends or people I met. That I would do interviews with them as well, not necessarily like real interviews, but just more like a conversation. And yeah. As I was having a conversation, I'd be like, "Do you mind if I get a few? Do you mind if I take a portrait of you while we're having the conversation?" And so that became kind of the nucleus for it. So I would ask the same series of questions to different people. So the first part of it was done in Ireland. That was the first part of it, and then um, I applied for. a... Res- I, and then I just kind of wanted to open it up as well. I just wanted to to see from different perspectives, like, like why would people come to Europe and the same reason, you know, people on their way to Europe, like what are they thinking, what, what, you know, mm. um, what, what's, their, what's their process and in, in terms of trying to get to another place. So um, I did two residencies in Morocco. I did one in the uh, Atlas Mountains. Um, I was there for three months and then I was in Morocco a second time for six months and I traveled between um, Marrakech and, and Tangier yeah. Over the course of six months, and over that course of six months, I did the same the same exact interviews with people that I met, but it was um, it was over time that I would get to know them. So a lot of the people I'd have, you know, I'd sit down with them two or three times, and this was across from Ireland to Morocco. Yeah, that,
0: what, what, what what I'm finding is what I'm picking up from all of that is so these interviews happened, and then yeah, and then you took the portraits that we see yeah. uh, in in yeah. in Winter Papers itself. Yeah. So in fact, is it is it the case that the, the the material was found during those uh, conversations, yes. but that's edited
3: out and we're left just with the image. Yeah, exactly, because that, that was more of an intimate conversation, so people were telling me certain things, and I would ask them at times, like, would you mind if I either printed it, because that was also a part of what I was thinking about for, like, an art show eventually. Would I do a thing where I would show some of the interviews or would I do a thing where you can listen to it as well? Mm. So that's still something that I'm still thinking about. Um, and the other thing about it as well is that I actually... Like, um, cause I was in Morocco a few years ago, and then I kind of, you know, like we said, COVID happened, and then that's when I kind of revisit the project and started looking back at it again in terms of editing the photos because there was the, cause normally I that was one of the things I always shoot a lot of color, so for 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 me with black and white that's a bit yeah, tricky cause as the well. images
0: here are black and white yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: so that was one of the things is like how how do you revisit that, but then also convey the story or the emotion or the idea, um, so it was one of those things crossing between colour and black and white was one thing, and then also uh, finding the right images. And also the other thing, too, is that for black and white, I normally shoot film, so a lot of those shots are actually film. So it's like analogue. I'm I'm looking at one particular image here of, of a woman... City. Yeah. Is
0: it, 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 maybe you would tell us the location for this
3: image. Oh, uh, that, that was Cynthia. That was taken in um, in Marrakech. So
0: that's in Mar- Marrakech. Yeah, I got and to
3: know her. T- sorry,
0: yeah. I, and I'm I'm see Cynthia sitting there yeah. uh, looking off into the distance. And mm-hmm. because of what you've just told me, mm-hmm. I'm wondering to what extent the conversation you had informed the pose that we get. Because mm-hmm. we I, I can see lots of things going on mm-hmm. in her head that I have to kind of try to imagine for myself.
3: Well, a lot of times we would talk about just life, and we were talking about like what some of her struggles were, like you know, because a lot of times these people were uh, were different, different. Because I made I, I basically became friends with people. It was more mm. of like. That's why I didn't really want to include some of the interviews because I thought it might be a bit too personal. But the thing is that, like, they would tell me intimate things. They were telling me some of, like, their passions, why they left the places they were. Um, In that particular situation, she was actually selling things um, on the street. And I would just sit with her for hours just talking about things. And she was just telling me what her ambitions were, where she came from, the things she had to give up to get to the place she was in. Um, And there's also actually two people in the images sorry, in a series of images that I took in Tangier and um in the back of it it's Tangier looking into Europe. Um because yeah,
0: was there, a, there are other, there's another image here. When I looked at it, I thought, oh, that's I a very lovely, sunny, a very lovely, then a sky." looked mm-hmm. then when realised, no, no,
3: there's some "No, kind of trees that kind of trees up on the superimposed up on of sky. the shadow of a No, no, of it's it's just of a technique I of a do multiple techniques a it's all, it's all film. a so I use like a series of either like gels or... a a like a filters that create certain effects yeah. but none of it is digitally manipulated. It's all oh, done it's in the camera. Okay. It's kind of extraordinary because yeah, yeah. it <laughs>
0: makes me look t- two or three yeah. times.
3: And it, it, coming to you then, Kerry
0: dougherty uh, in our Limerick studio, I was interested in, as I was, as I was speaking to Ishmael there, this idea of my imagining what was going on and what did you is it Cynthia was the name of the woman yeah, yeah in, in Cynthia's head and, and that she seems to be looking so clearly in your essay um which is very personal The Green Door at Fenor we're really talking about your search through a fog I think would be the best way of describing it to try to understand the situation you were in Kerry at that time
4: yeah Um fog is kind of a really interesting thing to me um I feel like sometimes we can use that word when we really don't want to talk about something Mm. Um, like, oh, it's all a bit foggy. I don't really remember it very well or however we word it. But it felt really interesting for me. So my piece explores um, perinatal depression, the depression that started in my pregnancy and continued into my kind of postpartum. Um, and, yeah, it was kind of intriguing because um, it felt foggy inside. And then I had these kind of two instances, um, at both happened in, at Fenora and Clare, where um, it was actually foggy outside as well. Um, yeah, and I kind of explore in the piece a little bit, the impact of that um, inner and outer sort of, it might seem like quite an obvious thing, um, hmm analogy to use but sometimes obvious is okay
0: <laughs> uh, but also the the thing about a fog is it it's not obvious because you can't you can't quite see where you are in the midst of a fog yeah. I, you know and and that uh, uh, that reflection the, the outer reflection in the fog that you experienced in the in the landscape that you that you were in how striking was that to you at the time when you were in the midst of this perinatal depression i mean yeah could it hit you strongly enough for you to say that's something that, that is helping me explain my inner situation
4: yeah totally I feel like really interestingly um, when the fog came kind of to the outside world um, I somehow it somehow made it yeah it did make things feel an awful lot clearer and I kind of explore in the peace that it made me feel like much more in touch with kind of being human, being an animal, being a mammal, um, because my my tressence, my kind of journey Mm. into motherhood had been quite... yeah, like for many other people, had been tricky. <laughs> I mean,
0: I'm at the risk of being crass about it, but in some ways what you're saying is it's, you could see clear, I can see clearly now the fog has come. Yeah. Is really where you were at.
4: <laughs> exactly, yeah, or the start of it anyway.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe you'd read a section uh, for us, Kerry, which is towards the end of the essay, and it, it gives. A, I think it gives a great sense of that relationship between the fog, the landscape of the fog, and the fog within your own, within your own self, uh, and, and how you overcame it.
4: Perfect, thank you very much. I remember reading years ago that more people die by suicide on full moon nights than any other night of the month. It makes sense to me that this would apply too in times of unrelenting fog. But what about silence? Can the same be said of times when there simply is no sound left over to get us through? When the world feels drenched to its core in thick, graying white silence. When we've forgotten how to make any of the noises that might remind us who we are. Her postnatal depression, their postnatal depression, your postnatal depression are not mine. I look and I listen and I try to marry them all up, but I can't. She raged and howled and fastened herself by the neck to the bare light pendant. One of them hid one of the babies in a box. The other walked into the sea without any of the babies. Neither of them raised all the babies they birthed. You kept it all so hidden that when you eventually told me, I was so shocked I almost didn't believe you. I'm not ready yet to write down mine, least of all to make a short bullet point list. I'll give myself one sentence just. There was fog, all day, every day. Not gone long enough to say I trust that it has actually gone for good. And as for the fog, the actual fog, well all I know is that it played and still is playing its part fog that crept around a green door at fenor that entered that house like a stray tabby cat that rubbed up against my legs and my filthy leggings that took me and shook me and made me speak
0: and that's Karen Doherty reading from her essay the green door at fenor which is part of winter papers 9 back with more after these And welcome back to this arena special on Winter Papers 9 with me still in studio here in Dublin, Kevin Barry, uh, along with uh, the the, the three writers who are sitting in front of me. Well, the photographer Ishmael Claxton, Hilary White, writer Roshan Kybert and in our Limerick studio, Kerry New Doherty, who we've just been speaking to. Um, I I thought in this final section of the programme we might look at some of the other pieces in the essay. And there's one piece that several of you kind of singled out. It's the very first piece in the in the in the in the, in the collection this year, Kevin Circus Stories, which is a classic um, Winter Papers. It's interviews in some ways. It's text by Peter Murphy and it's pictures by uh, Quailon Barron. And we're talking about the circus. Fascinating material. Yeah,
1: uh, well, Olivia and I, I'd say, are, are especially pleased with this because for about the last four or five years, we've been trying to figure out how to cover the circus, how mm. to do it. And then we thought, finally, uh, we'd we'll, we'll get our winter paper stalwart Peter Murphy, who contributes every year uh, to all nine so far, um, to, to just go and talk to everyone he can about Irish circuses and the history of it here. And he got people from Duffy's and Gerbilas and Fawcett's and the whole lot, and got, just got a great piece. I w- would mention the fantastic photographs from Caitlin Barron as well, which have a really wonderful, timeless feel. Uh, when our designers saw them, he thought, they can not yeah. taken any time in the last hundred years, you know. The circus is one of the things that always has to evolve to survive, but it's it's kind of never changing as well, in a in a sense, you know.
0: Those those picture those photographs really stood out for me within the piece as well, Ishmael. Yeah. and I know that you chose this as one of the. Yeah, yeah I actually the, chose this one as well. <laughs> was it because was, was it the photography and that mixture of photography that it was particularly spoke
3: Excuse me. The photos were pretty strong, but what what, what it stood out was a combination of like the. The history, where they talk about the history of the circus, the family behind of it, the, how it was um, a collaborative effort. Where basically they would hire locals. Um, you know, there's there's one section of it where they talk about hiring. I think um, 200 musicians from the liberties, and it's like they took them around the world, and then also um, the fact that they spoke their own language, and then it was adopted by the uh, queer community, and then it was like, and then it was used for a very long time. Um, the fact that it was a form of anti establishment just the whole circus community they were like they were part of society, but they weren't part of society. they were just on their own buzz you know it was just it just really mm. interesting to see about it because I've always loved the circus since I was a kid, like most people, and I've always wanted to run away to the circus but one of the things that you always normally see stories it's always like just Either like color, it's always like something very specific, also about the animals, but to see the history or them tell the history, then do the interviews. And then at the end, you know, the way the piece ends is really strong as well. And she's like, Don't make me cry, you know, it's like, oh. yeah. And, and,
0: <laughs> and the she that you're talking there, there I'm just looking at the number of people that, that features it, features the word. So Peter obviously went out and interviewed these people uh, David Duffy, the ringmaster of Duffy circus, Tara Gerbola, trapeze artist and co founder of Circus Gerbola, uh, uh, Lucy. Medley Cott, uh, the director of the Irish Street Arts, Circus and Spectacle Network and Charles O'Brien, advisor to the Irish Showman's Guild and marketing manager at Fawcett Circus uh, from basically from 2001 through into 2019. It's a fascinating oral history and mm. um, uh, Ishmael covering some of it there. That idea of their own language in particular mm. I must say, Roisin, uh, stood out for me.
2: Yeah, I'd never heard of Polari in the no. context mm. of circuses. I knew about mm. its role in gay communities mm-hmm. and the fact that it has... An actual function. Mm. Um, He describes, you know, people speaking over the microphone when something malfunctions and you can kind of obfuscate, you know, Mm. the meaning by speaking this kind of exciting sounding, (laughs) whimsical sounding language. Um, Fascinated me so much.
0: And I'm looking at one of the one of the photographs here. It's the first one we see in the book. Yeah. The the clown, the half-dressed clown. Some of the makeup still on his face, and he's just sitting sitting on the the outside of the caravan or in the steps of the mm. caravan. That's just a magnificent image, yeah, it's Ishmael. It,
3: yes, yes, yes. It's a great image. I also like the one with the um, acrobats in the air as well. Um, and then there's one of like these young ladies braiding each other's hair as well. They're all quite intimate. You yeah. can Tell that the the photographer um, had. Moments with these people, and they were with them for a good while. Doesn't it look like it was something that was quite rushed.
0: Yeah, and yeah. interviews. Interviews are a huge, important, a hugely important part of the book. Um, and and Kerry, it was an interview that you chose as well. An interview that opened up the processes of, of two particular artists that you're very fond of. I think.
4: Yeah, I really. I mean, I loved the circus piece as well. It's absolutely gorgeous. But I really loved um, Susan Thomaselli speaking with neve McCann. Um, the piece, you know, about her process. Um I just yeah I really love at the moment learning about kind of just what what goes on behind the scenes like what creates yeah.
0: And there was a particular, I think, resonance within that piece when there was a, a, a yeah. little line about hawks and doves, which speaks so much to the moment we're in, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah,
4: totally, because I've been really thinking about the role of the artist, you know, how we bear witness to violence and how we can kind of be instrumental in transformation that kind of prioritises care. And there's this line where Neve tells Susan, um, I want to pull us all into the same location of personal responsibility. And yeah, I've obviously just that's mm. been echoing for me as we look at what's going on. Yeah, and it's a it very, Gaza. very
0: strong, very strong interview. But the the interview, and this is one that you chose uh, Hilary, it's kind of, it turns the interview on it, uh, the interview process on its head in some ways. Explain, it's Rob Doyle's piece. Explain. It's it, Rob Doyle is,
5: and it's 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 quite uh, typical to form, I would say, about Rob Doyle because he is a bit of a gunslinger and he's into like monkeying around with the form bit. So he was commissioned by you guys to review a yeah. book, a book about film editing Um, uh, The Conversations, Walter Murch and the Art of Editing Film by Michael Ondaatje, who people will know from The English Patient. And Rob is, he formats it like an interview with himself and he's sort of explaining to himself what he's doing. But as it goes along, it kind of, it drifts into the process of editing, of editing writing. It drifts into film criticism. Metaphysical jiggery pokery. Um, it's it's quite something, and it's um, it's kind
0: of like Rob is interviewing himself. There's a Y yeah. and an R in and it gets quite out of hand towards the end. Is <laughs> it's an, an, really an ar- anarchic there is, as, as you would expect from him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I suppose the declaration of interest here: the opening line of Feed Me Seaboard in April 2022. I'm alone in Berlin for the first time. Rob, my boyfriend, is on a residency in Singapore. The aforementioned Rob Doyle is who were speaking. You were speaking mm. about their roshin the editing process is what comes under under the microscope here do do you discuss the editing do you do you share work with each other in that way would oh, you are you his first reader is he your first reader he's much
2: more confident than i am i know that his any comment from him would mean way too much to me and it would make me change everything so i i jealously guard my work until the very last minute and then i show it to him for legal reasons,
4: <laughs> <laughs>
5: um,
2: but no, he sends me work all the time, and I'm very flattered because it's it's lovely to. Write I have to it. say,
5: I'm I'm pretty intrigued. You got a carnivorous plant as part of your Rob replacement therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What,
2: what do they have in common? <laughs> I'll
0: leave well. that to you. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the editing process is what's discussed in 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 Rob's piece, uh, Kevin. And it is quite anarchic how he does it, but there is a vulnerability there for a writer when you go about editing them. It's a, it's a fine, you know, this as a writer yourself. It's a, it's a fine line to tread, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and I guess it's something you get more experienced with um, as you go on to building up a writing practice, but that first email you get with the editorial suggestions is, is, is a memorable moment and not always for the happiest reasons where you go, <laughs> oh my God, who are these eejits, you know, all of this <laughs> stuff. But it's, 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 it's a great thing to, uh, to, to, to to be able to put that aside and, and start to really read into the, your edits and, and, and find your way with them. Um, we, uh, I love the, the piece with Rob as well because it's um, we were trying to figure out how to cover film editing for a while mm. and so it touches on that but then it just goes off. On, on its way and it, it was great the way it opened out.
5: It was interesting you were talking about the Peter Murphy piece about the history of, of circus and Peter described that process as being like film editing of condensing all these yeah. uh, these oral interviews yeah. down to something Cut yeah, no, action. and it's is,
0: it is, it's clever the way he does yeah. that. And of course, audio editing is your next job because we did manage to get a little bit of feed me Seymour in when we were talking about Russian. Ro- Russian says, yeah. "How are you going to get audio into the book?" Is the next task for oh. you for you to, for you to <laughs> want to go. Although there's a website, I have to say, in one of the pieces, there's a website referenced so people can go to that. So you're kind of mixing yeah. the mixing the media. Thank you so much to Oliver for being with us this evening. A fascinating conversation. Winter Papers Nine is what we've been speaking about. Edited by Kevin Barrier and Olivia Smith published by Curlew Editions winterpapers.com I suppose is where people can find out all about how to go about buying etc absolutely and, yeah uh, Kevin thanks to Kevin Barry Ishmael Clexton Roshan Carbert Kerry Doherty, and Hilary White for their contributions this evening tonight's programme was researched by Leah Murphy Sinead Egan was the studio producer the broadcast coordinator was Ollie Hamilton and Ruth Kennington was on sound the programme was compiled by Paula Shields I will speak to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RTU Radio 1 John Creedon will be with you after the news.